Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are more than 100 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. My guest on today's show is Kelvin S., a man whose life was defined and dominated by booze and drugs. You'll hear lots of similarities, though parts of his story contain many of the things most alcoholics refer to when they say, there but for the grace of God go I, or that could have been me. Drinking, smoking crack, gang membership, desperate crimes, jail, broken probation, prison, and parole violations all occurred within five years after his first drink. Raised in a home rife with family secrets, Kelvin's mother did her best to help keep the kids out of trouble. But desegregation during his middle school years had Kelvin bust across town to schools where he struggled to find a persona with which he could fit in. Back in his neighborhood, he was bullied for that and had to adopt a different persona to fit that environment. Confusion, lack of direction, lost identity, and low self-esteem inevitably became the drivers to drinking and smoking marijuana at 17. He soon joined a gang and started smoking crack cocaine. Purse snatching, shoplifting, and other crimes put him at odds with the legal system and put Kelvin in jail and later prison. He mostly ignored or dismissed alternatives to incarceration, such as rehab, though he did attend some AA meetings in his early 20s. The next 20 years until Kelvin got sober in AA are an odyssey of drug and alcohol-addled behavior. He floundered in a sea of lost jobs, multiple treatment centers, bitter divorce, crime, jail, and many failed attempts to get and stay sober. He finally found AA in 2017. Earnest in his efforts to stay sober through AA, he wasn't completely convinced that AA would work. So he set up a contingency fund into which he made regular deposits. If AA didn't work, he'd have enough money saved to drink himself to death. Fortunately, Kelvin went to meetings, got a sponsor, did service work all around the AA club, and worked the steps to sufficiently claim a place in the middle of the program. After a year of AA recovery, Kelvin liquidated his contingency fund, bought a watch, and went to the next meeting. The rest of Kelvin's story is captivating, fascinating, and colorful. My interview with him enriched my sobriety, and I hope it will do the same for you. So sit back and enjoy the next hour and 10 minutes with my friend and AA brother, Kelvin S. My name's Kelvin, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Kelvin. Hey. Thanks for doing the AA Recovery Interviews podcast with me this morning. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, you and I are sitting in the room where we just came out of the meeting. Right. Everybody left uh, after chit-chatting after the meeting, and you and I are sticking around to do this interview. I knew that when I've heard you share in this particular meeting before, I thought, that guy's got a really interesting story. Wow. And I wanted to make sure that your story became available to all the people who need to hear it. Yes. So even if just one person identifies with it, you will have helped carry the message. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So here we were in this meeting this morning. What did you think of the meeting? Man, the meeting was good. I like meetings where they talk about drinking specifically yeah you know obsession 
solution, you know, what it was like, you know, how do you deal with it when stuff, when that drinking stuff comes over you, and, you know, that kind of stuff is the meat and potatoes for me. It really is. It really is. And for me, too. Yeah. Uh, so, as we always do when we're sitting in meetings, at least I do, I have a tendency to think about what it is I would say if I get called on. Now, this meeting this morning was, when did the obsession or the compulsion leave? And it had some of Dr. Bob's nightmare in there about, about how he wanted to drink for the first couple of years. When you think about sitting there in that meeting, and I didn't get to hear you share in the meeting, right. what was it you would have said about the compulsion or the obsession to drink and when it left you? You know, how would I, that particular part of Dr. Bob's story was a relief when I heard it because I, I struggled too for a couple of years with the obsession. Mm -hmm. What did that look like when you were struggling with it? What it looked like in hindsight was a reservation. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it was a, just in case this doesn't work, I'm gonna put some money to, to the side, enough where it can sustain me going full throttle. With drinking, you mean? With drinking. Oh. The way that I like to drink. Yeah. So what happened was, A-Head started to work. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, if I'm gonna get drunk, I better get drunk now before too much time goes by. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Before too much time goes by, uh -huh. and people start, you know, to really be let down if I go back out. And this is going to meetings, getting out of detox, going to meetings every day, sitting on the front row, huh. sharing, and I was still putting money to the side just in case it didn't work, so. That was, uh, that was when? I've been, I've been sober since September 15, 2017. Wow, so you've been sober five years plus? Five years plus, yeah. So even while you were sitting in those meetings, trying to absorb everything that was going on, you still were putting money aside for your contingency in case it didn't work? Yes. When did you realize it was starting to work? Whew. I realized it was starting to work probably about let me see, I, det I came out of detox. I stayed in detox four months. Mm -hmm. I come out of detox and came straight to a meeting. Hmm. I took the suggestion to go to a meeting before I unpacked my bags. Uh, six months in, I sat on the front row probably about two months before someone asked me to chair a meeting. Hmm. I chaired that meeting probably about a year I was probably about a year in, so we're talking about 18 months hmm. of uh, trying to save a thousand dollars as a uh, just-in-case fund, hmm. and uh, I think I got up uh, to about $800, and this is 18 months in before I bought a watch. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's when it started. <laughs> 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 I said, you know what? I'm not gonna do it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm gonna spin it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I noticed this from probably about a year in. Mm -hmm. I was like, man, this thing is working. Getting involved, oh. chairing the meeting, meeting people, 
like you, people, you know, asking for my number and me calling them outside of the rooms uh-huh. and, you know, that substitution, whatever it was that I was looking for out there, I started finding it in here. And it, yeah, I noticed it, it kind of started working. So I started, it, it was kind of a fit where like, okay, it's working, but do I really want to do this yeah. for the rest of my life? Isn't that something how even when it's working within a certain period of time, we still think some other shoe's going to drop here. You know, that something's going to happen where I'll have to drink again or I'll want to drink again. Did you get yourself a sponsor during that first year and a half, year, year and a half? Yes, Howard. I had a, uh, I had what you call a detox sponsor. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know that drill. Those are the people that come back from to the detox centers and you know share. And mm-hmm. he did tell me to get a AA sponsor. So did you? Yeah, I did. How how long were you in the program before you got a sponsor? Uh, AA sponsor? Yeah. Not long. Probably about. Probably about eight months in. I had worked the steps with my detox sponsor, all 12. Uh-huh. I came, sat around a couple of months and uh, asked Janice. Very cool. To sponsor me. Yeah, she is a beautiful woman. Man. She worked a great program. Oh, man. We really miss her. Man, totally honest, totally 100 all the time. Yeah. Yeah. She uh, helped me become all right with being Kelvin. Yeah, yeah. I get that. That's yeah. important. Yeah. Um, so you were si- you were chairing the meeting for, you said, about a year or something like right, that? Wh- right, Which meant you were getting leaders, and you yes. were taking care of the money, and you were getting the room set up and that kind of thing. Right. Um, what did you notice about the relationship between being of service and your comfortability with being an AA? Man, that's, that's the difference maker. In what way? Oh man, uh, start feeling a part of, start being comfortable being around people and not drinking. Yeah, that's where the transition happened because I didn't know how to be around people mm-hmm. without either thinking about drinking or drinking. And that service, it made me be all right with, okay, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can sustain a life, you know what I mean, without drinking and still have some fun. Fun was a big part of my drinking, Howard. I didn't want to be bored. I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to be churchy. Yeah. Now, when when you first started drinking, was that the goal was to have fun? That was the goal. So what does it look like if we look back in Kelvin's life here? What was your family of origin like, and, and what part did that play in your development, let's say, either towards becoming an alcoholic or just being the person you are? Oh, Howard, man. It, it's, uh, I can't, my family was very uh, secretive. Yeah. So a lot of things, you know, I, I know they were close. Yeah. You know, they were from Nacogdoches, the country, and they, they uh, you know, one by one started migrating hmm. to Houston. Mm-hmm. So they were close-knit, 
but it was, uh, you know, what we do here, say here, stays here, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, children don't listen to grown folks' conversation. You know what I mean? You you know. Put out of the room. Yeah, yeah. Put out the room. You stay in your place. So uh, we just kind of amongst ourselves found our, our way. But you're talking about siblings, like siblings, like my cousins and sisters and brothers, and you know, and and the parents worked and did they did they didn't do a bunch of drinking, but they did, you know, parties. Yeah. But I think. A lot of who I am today came from me being outside playing. Outside playing. Yeah, outside playing with others. So did you enjoy your life when you were a kid? Man, how would I been? I lived that. All of it was so fake when I look back at it. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it didn't have any substance, so I don't remember hardly none of it. Yeah. You know, I, I was fake. You know, I would. I had identity crisis because uh, it was the time where they were taking the black neighborhoods yeah. and busing the children to the white neighborhoods for school. Yeah. They were kind of migrating that the MTV era mm-hmm. from the Southwest. So they would. So we were from the Southwest, South the Harlem Clark part, and across the tracks was the, uh, you know, the Chimney Rock. It was a big Jewish community, middle mm-hmm. school. So we were migrating, so, and then MTV was coming. So I had a big identity crisis, man, so. When you were in school, you weren't with your friends from your neighborhood. No, I wasn't with, with only the ones that were getting bust over with me on the yeah. tracks. So, you know, I was dyeing my hair and wearing a ponytail and, huh. you know, I was, you know. To fit in? To fit in on where I was going, but then when I would go back to the where I was from, they would do the laughter, you know, pick on. So, uh-huh. but the people on the, in the Jewish community were accepting me more than the people actually on my side. So mm. that happened a lot through my elementary and middle school years. So. That must have been really rough. Yeah, that was. Yeah. So. I was lost in that, you know, I, my memories are, you know, a high of the details of that is like very, very dull. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. We have a tendency, I know I, I do the bad memories from my childhood, took some reconstructing and deep therapy and other things over the years, but I know that there's just a part of us that knows to survive. We can't hold on to those memories and, and be able to not go bananas. Right. I can imagine not having an identity, you know, going one place and having to try and fit in and then going back to another place and trying to fit in. Right. It could be really confusing for a, a kid. Yeah. yeah. So when did alcohol first enter the scene for you? My mom was a hard worker. Mm-hmm. And she always because she didn't have a lot of education. Mm -hmm. She wanted me to have an education, so she would always move into what she thought was better spots. For the school district? Yeah, for the school district. Right. So she got to the point where she bought a house Mm -hmm. and was uh, supposed to be a good neighborhood, but it actually, was a melting pot (laughs) of a whole lot of other people doing what she was doing. So the neighborhood looked good, but the people that were in it weren't too good, you know what I mean? So I think I was, how would I probably was about going from eighth grade to ninth grade. Uh And uh, I never did any drinking before then. 
did you have the opportunity and you just turned it down or were you just not exposed to it? I just wasn't exposed to it much, you know what I mean? I didn't have, you know, that wasn't a part of my growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that were around, they weren't drinking and drugging or nothing like that. So that summer of eighth to ninth grade, when my mom was getting this new house built, we moved into this new brand neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It was a, a person around the corner. He was a lot older. And uh, he used to be out there, you know, uh, he was probably about 18 or 19. And he would be out there in the morning, you know, smoking a cigarette and smoking weed and just kind of talking to the young people waiting on the bus. And uh, for some reason, I, you know, I haven't seen it like that. It was something new. And he offered it to me, and I took it. You're talking about uh, marijuana? Uh, yeah. At, at first, it was marijuana. Uh-huh. Yeah. At uh, first, it was weed. The very first time you smoked, or let's say the first few times you smoked, um, what was the response that your body and mind had to the, the grass you were smoking? It, it wasn't, I didn't have one other than the munchies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't. I didn't I didn't feel anything, I mean, that I wasn't already feeling because I was already crazy up here. Yeah, I get it. So it would take a lot for me to feel, you know, I'm consumed with self, Mm. full of fear. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm consumed with wanting to fit in. Well, I I would think just the very action of smoking pot with these guys would help you feel like you fit in. Is that a safe assumption? I guess it kind of, yeah. Made me feel like, you know, maybe like a badass or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was doing something cool. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. I don't know where the cool conception came from. <laughs> Why did I instantly think that smoking weed is cool? Where did that come from, Howard? Well, I, okay, so you've got this 18 year old kid hanging out on the corner. You got all the other kids kind of, you know, uh, sidling up to him. Right. And he is the role model or he is the image of what. You know, he's cool, hang around him, you're cool. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, yeah, the definition of cool now and the definition of cool then is crazy. to opposite sides of the goal. And when you're a kid, you know, it's that's important. Yeah. So after the first few times that you smoked pot, were you desirous of smoking again? Ah, yeah. I mean, because when we would get high, I would get the munchies. I, I can't remember feeling any different. Because mm-hmm. I guess I was excited already about being doing something different. You know, what was cool to me was, you know, he would buy food and we would sit around his house and laugh. And you know what I mean? And his mama was cool and he had a bunch of fine sisters and they were just one big, <laughs> you know, he didn't have to hide. He didn't have to play two characters. You know, it was one way in the house and one way out the house. He was just, you know, and, and everybody was accepting of each other. And I think that's was more attractive to me than anything. So in a way, you wanted what he had. Yeah, I wanted to hang out, man. I kind of wow. liked that. So you hung out with him yeah. as the source of being able to get high and drink? Well, I don't know if it was the source of being able to uh, get high and drink more than it was the source of, I can, I can, I feel like I can be myself, you know, I didn't have to play both sides of the fence like I had been doing up to that point. Mm-hmm. I finally found that place where I actually fit in where it was okay to be, 
you know, Kelvin, whoever Kelvin was. That must have been quite a relief to you. Yeah, that was, I mean, it was good because, you know, my mom thought I was just right next door around the corner, so she wasn't doing no pressure. Right. You know, his mom didn't trip that we were drinking and smoking weed. Mm. You know, his sisters was attractive and funny and, you know. And Sounds like a pretty great arrangement. Yeah, I mean, it, it was. But alcohol hit me totally different, though. In what way? Because he was the first person to introduce me to alcohol. Mm-hmm. And when he brought that big old 40 ounce, and I took a couple of drinks of it, I came out of that shell. Hmm. I was, uh, you know, talkative. I wasn't scared of people. Hmm. That took me fast. Hmm. That's when uh, I started to uh, be able to talk to girls. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, that's handy. Man, handy. Yeah, it was a tool. A fight, be a badass, you know, all of that stuff right there. So drinking was a real personality changer for you, wasn't Man, exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. It was a personality changer. Were the people who were around you who were sharing in this experience, did you notice them changing as much as you felt yourself changing? No. Because the, the people that were around me at that time, I, I started hanging around older people. Mm -hmm. So I was the only one really that went along for that ride oh. that was from the bus stop. I yeah. guess they had sense and say, you know, danger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right. <laughs> you just, you just and, didn't happen to see that sign, did you? And you know what, Howard, <laughs> man, it's that. crazy because uh, I've never thought, I mean, the questions that you're asking me got me reflecting, and I've never dug that. That stuff was stuffed. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet it was. So did you get any feedback from these people that would lead you to believe you should probably cut back or cut down or, or kind of level it off a little bit? Or were they just encouraging you to get as drunk as you want whenever you wanted? Man, I would, I, if they were, I didn't care enough to listen. I was on that wave then, you know. Yeah. Now they the ones looking like they missing out. And I felt like I found the answer. Yeah. So I was coming from up here. Yeah. They started being down here. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, so. Do you keep tabs on some of those people? Do you know where they're at? Are they still around? Yeah, I do. Uh-huh. I do. Because, you know, I remember my mom used to say, man, you, you, you know, you know, I grow doing stupid stuff. And everybody's older now, mm. and everybody's kind of back in line. In hindsight, everybody was going through the same thing. And, you know, most of us are better now. And we kind of uh, encourage each other. Are any of those people in AA that you know? No. That's interesting. None of them are in AA that I know. None of my uh, childhood or middle school, high school, uh, people, because cause I drafted a lot of people because out of that relationship, come to find out he was in a gang, mm -hmm. he put me down. I was in a gang, and, uh, and I also drafted some people. And we were all kids. Yeah. And we all kind of grew up together, and we still keep in contact, most of us. Hmm. But none of them 
that I know of had the ism like I did, like I do. What kind of gang was it? Was it was there a, a criminal element to it? Was there a you know an anti-societal element? It was centered around neighborhood, like in the same area. It was you know friends. We're gonna call each other this, and nobody gonna mess with us. I get it. I get it. <laughs> so you guys weren't you weren't going out and actively starting trouble. No, 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 no. Okay. We weren't doing that. Good. We weren't doing that. We, we, you know, we were uh, we were saying like nobody's gonna bring no trouble to us. I get it. And at the same time, starting trouble too, though. So this was going on in your neighborhood, right? Do you think you could have survived being in a, some of the more notorious gangs that you see in the media? You know, I, um, looking at the way that Houston is, uh-huh. they really don't have those criminal organized notorious gangs. Usually, you know, the ones that say that they are, Houston is just not built like that. They either usually faking or maybe they know somebody that's from that, you know, or they might be from California, up north, or Tennessee, or, you know, because, you know, just from experience, I noticed that that line kind of stops when it gets to Texas. That's interesting. So the real notorious criminal or organized gangs are not in Houston. Usually the gangs in Houston are made like through neighborhoods. I see. Yeah. So this is all going on while you're pretty much in high school at the yeah, time? Yeah, pretty much in high school. How were you as a student and did you do anything with athletics? What kind of high school experience did you have? Man, Howard, that's, I think I was forced to play football. Huh. Because my mom thought I was, you know, big enough to go pro. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Through my stitch. <laughs> oh, my God. And, 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 you know, she forced me to do really? football. You didn't want to do it? I, I didn't want to do it. And it, and, and it didn't, I didn't want to do any athletics. All I wanted to do was hang out. Hang out. And, and you know, so I had the force of my mom wanting me to, you know, play football and do extracurricular uh-huh. and me not wanting to do any of it. And that was about the same time the no pass, no play kicked in. Okay. So it didn't take long before that. Before ninth grade was over, you know, that was over with. Yeah, I kind of gave up on school instead of, but, you know, the little time that I did go, if I was interested, I can pass. I was always brilliant in that. I didn't even have to study. If I just You're a smart guy, smart guy, just good. I can solve word problems. So um, I have this picture of a guy who is in a gang that's mostly together to do the things that you guys like to do, like drink and you know maybe smoke pot. Were there any hard drugs involved at all? Not at that time. Okay, so so. Just hang out with each other when necessary. Do whatever you need to do to get a little extra action, right? And keep the the people you don't want on your turf, off your turf, right? That sort of thing, right? Right. And then and then at the same time, you're in high school. Did you give up on high school early? What did that look like? I I, I gave up, but my mom didn't. She dragged me. She did. Yeah, she dragged me, and she would go up there, and she you know. Say, well, can you just give him another chance and this and that and, yeah. you know, 
he gonna go to school this time. And I mean, she drug, drug it as much as she, probably to about the 10th grade, maybe going into the 11th grade mm -hmm. when I just totally dropped out. So she did her best, man. That must have broken her heart. At that time, I think she probably gave up, yeah. On the school deal. Yeah. And she was just big on respect. Well, if you're not gonna go to school, you're gonna get a job. And you're gonna wash these dishes and you're gonna clean the house and you're gonna respect me and you're gonna do all that I want you to do mm. if you're gonna stay here. So did you do that? I did that. You did that? I did that. So you were pretty much a dutiful son Right. But uh, an unwilling student. <laughs> right. Uh, perhaps a rebellious member of society. <laughs> right. But right. you listened to what your mama had to say, right? Yeah, right? yeah, I had to, yeah. So you continued to live at home and do what she wanted you to do? To the best of my ability, yeah. So what's the next milestone in Kelvin's life past high school? The drinking is, 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 is getting bad. Yeah. I think this is uh, late 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, going into the 90s, um, big cocaine era. I got introduced to cocaine in 10th grade. In what form? Crack. Crack, okay. Definitely crack. I remember it was a time where I was embarrassed to say it was crack. You know, I came in the room saying that I only do cocaine until somebody finally said, man, you do cocaine, you smoke crack. Say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know what, I always tell people, when I started saying it, my program changed. Yeah, I'll bet. For the better. Yeah. When I started saying that I smoke crack and not do cocaine, it's something about that humbling process yeah. that, you know, that helps you in this process, in the AA process. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. There's a lot of that that goes on in the room. <laughs> you know what I've noticed over the years, Kelvin, is that um, there's this sense, especially in the clubs, because I got sober in a club too, and I remember in the early days of going to AA in the clubs, there was always a sense of people trying to one-up each other on how bad it was, you know? It's like, it was like, can you top this? And I was the best worst there was, you know? <laughs> right, so, right, so right. I, I always felt like maybe I hadn't gone down far enough because that guy lived under a bridge or that guy didn't have any shoes or, or whatever. And then the flip side of that was the desire in my ego to want to be the guy who says, oh, I really hit a bottom when I lost my Rolex, <laughs> you know, when I, had, when I had to mortgage my Ferrari or something like right. that. But cocaine was always one of those definitive drugs. I mean, if you're shooting heroin, there's no, there's no easy way to say that you're shooting heroin. Right. Cocaine always seemed to be the, it was the, it was the drug you did if you had a lot of money and you were one of the beautiful people. At least this is how it was yeah. in, in my world back right. then. But crack was always like, man, you know, in an alley, <laughs> smoking, well, I'm talking about the smoking and the crack. Yeah. And so I can imagine how telling people cocaine, you know, probably made you feel a little bit elegant. Yeah, yeah, made me feel better about myself. <laughs> it, it, man, that's crazy. That isn't it, isn't it? That's, that's the disease. Now crack, what kind of addictive qualities did crack have for you? Oh man, it, man, I was, uh, we were young and we used to go over there for 16 by Astral World. They used to have a lake back there. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, the 610 Lakes or uh -huh. whatever it was called. And uh, we used to go back there and, and drink. And drink. And there was a guy in the car. 
and uh, I remember he had a road map open. And we were into harassing people back then, you know, young, man, what you doing in that car, this and that, and you know, just, you know, being kids. And he was like, uh, you want some of this or something? He had it on, it broken down. And you know, I said yes to everything, just sure. like I said it at the bus stop. Right, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, what is it? Uh-huh. He's like, just try it. And uh, I tried it. it just like that beer yeah. gave me that effect. When I tried it for the first time, I was off to the races. I think I was 16, mm. 16 years old, Howard. Mm-hmm. So from that point on, everything I did evolved around that hmm. in some kind of way. Did you dial back the other things you were doing to do that more, or were you continuing to do everything the same amount? I, I was continuing to do everything the same amount, mm-hmm. but, you know, it takes you fast. So I had to, you know, um, put that mask on like I wouldn't get took fast, and that was that, that led me back to that double life again. So at that point in your life, you were kind of living a double life. The the Kelvin that does what his mother wants him to do at home and takes care of business there, but then the other one who goes out and hangs down by the 610 lake and smokes crack. Man, at this time, it's a triple life, Howard. Triple life. Because you got the, the Kelvin that wants to do good by my mom because that's our whole family orient. orient. Then you got Kelvin, the gang leader, mm. that has to put this, you know, whatever on. Mm-hmm. And now you got... Kelvin, the secret crack smoker, that's hanging with the gang, but also hanging with the people that, the guy that was with the map. <laughs> so the gang wasn't necessarily doing crack. No, 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 no. For some reason, they didn't draft that ism like I got. They just didn't cross those lines so easily like I did. So you were a triple threat. Triple. Three faces. So how did that play out, and for how long did you do the crack cocaine, and, and what were some of the, the consequences of doing that? Man, I think at 17, I snatched the purse because I ran out. I got like 10 years deferred probation. You got caught? I got caught, of course. Huh. Uh, yeah. For your first offense? First 10 years? 10 years probation. Probation. First, first offense. Then it was different. Right now, you probably wouldn't get that much, but back then, you know, things were different then, you know. But it was just that. It wasn't anything to do with the drugs or alcohol. Snatching the purse. Now, I knew I ran out, and that's why I was snatching the purse, to get some more. And the judge knew, of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, he probably saw something, because that's when I was ordered to come to AA. Just from that? Huh? Just from that, 17. So somewhere along the way, you had to admit that you were an alcoholic or drug addict to the judge or at least acknowledge it so he would send you to AA? No. No? He must have saw it without me. Really? It must have been the nature of the crime. Mm. Now that yeah. I think about it. Because yeah. it's a dope fiend crime. Yeah. No, nobody snatch purses unless they got a, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And you know, looking back, you know, because I didn't stop, my criminal life didn't stop then. But looking back, I'm 50 years old now, I know that if somebody's snatching purses, then they desperate. It's a desperate crime. Something about your experience that lets you know the true nature of, of what's going on. People do desperate things because they don't do desperate things because they want to pay a phone bill. We'll be right back. 
My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. So you had this 10-year probation. 10-year deferred, yep. De- deferred uh, probation. What did that look like in, in actual practice? Did, were you restricted in your activities? What, what was that probation like for you? Man, that, that probation was community service in AA meetings and paying whatever fees I had to pay every time I went and saw the probation officer. So you're 17, you're on probation, you're going to AA for the first time. What was AA like to you when you first went? What did you think about it? Nothing. Nothing. I was, you know, a bunch of old guys smoking cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I did. I, I, I wasn't even worried about what it I was too consumed with me and what I was doing before and after. So were you getting a paper signed a couple? Yeah, I was getting a paper signed. So how many times a week did you go? Man, I probably once. Once a week. And I would forge the signatures. <laughs> and I would forge the signatures. But, you know, it didn't last long, Howard, because I was, for it wasn't long after that I got another case and went to prison. Mm. So I think I might have been on probation three, four, five months. So you broke the probation? I broke the probation, because I didn't stop. Nothing changed. So you were trying to fulfill the probation with the least work necessary. And, and still maintain the life that I was doing. I'm curious, how did that make sense to you at the time? I mean, what were you telling yourself about that? You, that you just had bad luck and got caught? Or what, what were you thinking back then? Man, I was, yeah, I just had bad luck, got caught. I wasn't, I never identified with myself. Yeah. I didn't know who I was. I didn't think about where I was going, where I wanted to go. I didn't think about who I was hurting. I didn't think about nobody but myself, Howard, mm. and getting more of that stuff that made me not have to feel. So you're drinking, you're continuing to smoke crack. Right. Your decision-making goes along that same trajectory, and you got caught for a second crime. I, I got caught for a second crime. I got uh, caught for stealing some clothes out of the store. Mm. Must have been really nice clothes, huh? That is, I don't know what I was thinking, right? I, no, I get it. I get it. I mean, you know, they were, you know in hindsight, it wasn't <laughs> at that time. Yeah, yeah. You know, at yeah. that time, yeah. not knowing shit, I thought I had something. So you got caught, you're on probation, you're off to prison. I'm off to prison. You know, that's, that's what happened. That's the goal. Back then, I would say, that's the worst thing that could have, but that's what happens, and that's what needs to happen when you're on that track, Howard. Yeah. Now I'm a, 
law-abiding taxpaying citizen. I'm saying like, I'm glad that stuff is in place. Yeah. Because that kind of behavior, full throttle, ain't no telling where it's gonna lead to and who you can hurt. Yeah, so I'm off to prison. So I've known, in fact, I've interviewed a number of people who have prison as part of their stories. People like Tom from the meeting you and I were just in. He spent many, many years behind bars. Um, uh, one of the women recently who I interviewed, uh, she spent some time in prison for intoxication manslaughter. Uh, other people uh, spent time and prison changed them. Most of the stories I've heard from people in AA about prison include some kind of AA component. What was prison like for you and what was your sentence? My sentence was the 10 years deferred uh -huh. that I had to do that I was on probation for. That's the thing about deferred probation. If you break it. You gotta do it. You gotta do it. Oh, yeah. But if you do it, supposedly it doesn't go on your record. Supposedly. So I had to do the 10 years. I was 17 years old. It was scary. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I had this, what I saw on TV, what I thought it was like, mm -hmm. but when I got there, it was nothing like it. It was nothing like it was on TV. You know, they kind of keep you separated. They keep the young people with the young people and the older people with the older people. And so it might have been chaotic, but I was used to chaotic life. So actually it was rest for me because, you know, I had been doing three lives for a long time. I was tired, you know what I mean? And it was also, you know, when I got there, it, it, I didn't think of it bad at all. Hmm. I, I really didn't. Um, it didn't feel bad when you got there, but did it start feeling different at some point where you're thinking, God, I'm in prison. I need to get out. I, I got to do something. No, no. Huh. I mean, what were my goals when I was in there? Making myself as comfortable as I knew how. You know what I mean? Having plenty of whatever I need. Writing girls. You know, it's totally immature shit. You know, I was 17, you know, I didn't have no role models on what I wanted to be like. So I thought I was in the moment, trying to get as much mail as I could to keep my mind off of, of being in there, you know. But, you know, you get close relationships with the people that are in there, you know what I mean? Uh -huh. And, you know, you kind of read each other's mails and mail and hear each other's story and, you know, you eating yeah. and drinking and, and showering, you're doing everything together, so it becomes a close bond. And, you know, I like that, that feeling of acceptance, that close bond. You remember, if, now that I think about it, that takes me back to the guy's house. Yeah. 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 And yeah. the gangs. Yeah, and that all, all of that stuff. So it fit right in. So you were able to replicate your seeming lifestyle in prison. Right. One of the things that Tom and some of the others have told me about is that thinking that if you go to prison, you won't be able to drink or you won't be able to use drugs is a fallacy that drugs and alcohol are relatively easy to get behind bars. What was your experience with that? Man, I didn't, uh, I guess it was available. Uh-huh. But I wasn't connoisseuring it though, for some reason. But now that I think about it, I mean, I don't know if it was more of the lifestyle that I was addicted to at that time, uh -huh. other than, uh, you know, the drugs. Cause like once I went to prison, I didn't think about it. 
So you were able to stay sober and clean in prison? Right, without even thinking about. Yeah, because here you were in a totally different environment. Right. I get it. Right. So you're in prison, you're, you're 17, you're moving through prison, you're staying sober and clean. What's the next milestone? I get out of prison. After how many years? Two years, almost two years. Did like 18 months in there and like another six months in a pre-release. Was this the first time you came up for parole? I made it the first time I came up, I came up for parole. So you must have been a pretty good guy during that 18 yeah, months. Yeah, I was a pretty good guy. I made uh -huh. parole. I was 19 years old. And you know, my old mama, she wanted to send me back to high school. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <Is> she <laughs> From one you prison to old. another. <laughs> I was, she thought I still, you know, she wanted me to get my diploma. So did you? No, I got my GED. Okay, that's Not cool. my diploma, but she made me go to, I was 19 years old, and I figured I had, you know, I was grown. Mm-hmm. Because when I, when, when I got arrested, I was in and out of high school. You know what I mean? I yeah. dropped out, but she didn't know it. Right. You know, so when I, she think I was plucked, I made it to 11th grade. So when I'm 19, coming out of prison two years later, of course she gonna grab me and say, you gonna get back in school and you gonna get your diploma. Yeah. So I was too old to go to school at the regular high school. Yeah. So I had to go to a magnet-like high school. Mm-hmm. We tried the magnet high school and uh, I didn't get the GED there. I yeah. stopped going there, but I eventually I got my GED. So once you got out of prison and you went back to school, did you go back to the old lifestyle immediately? I went back to the lifestyle, but not to the drug part of it. How were you able to do that? I don't know. I think I was young. Uh, you know, I wanted to get some things accomplished. Uh -huh. You know, I wanted to get me a car. I wanted to get a job. I had this projector. Something, yeah, I guess something did happen. What was that? Like you said, you know, some people, they say after prison, you know, something happened. Yeah. You know, because when I got out, I did want to get a job hmm. in a car, get my GED, and be semi-normal. You know what I mean? Yeah. I never thought about that, Howard. Yeah. So you had some ambition once you got out. I had some, some ambition once I got out. Huh. None when I went in, some when I got out. So maybe prison was a good a good thing to have happened for you definitely, in that regard. Definitely. Huh. Definitely. Were you continuing to drink during this time, though? Yes. And were you drinking alcoholically or heavily or abusively? How were you yeah. drinking? I mean, I was drinking every day. Yeah. You know, it was still a big part, drinking as much as I could and smoking weed as much as I could without getting caught because I was still on parole. Still on parole, that's right. So, you know. Um, but I wanted a job and got one, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And got a girlfriend. Well, that's cool. And, you know, she got pregnant and, you know, and I, you know, I didn't, I thought instantly that because, you know, she got pregnant we were supposed to get married and I asked her, of course she said no. She said no. Yeah, of course, cause I didn't have nothing going. Huh. But, uh. During the course of this job, it's life changing. I was working at Subway. Uh huh. There was a lady that worked there. She was actually a. She actually worked at Sugarland Telephone Company. Yeah. She was a like a. They had operators. Yeah. 
<laughs> Those days, yeah. <laughs> and uh, she worked at Subway part-time, and I started working at Subway part-time, mm-hmm. and uh, she introduced me to a guy, and uh, he worked at Sugarland too, but he was a supervisor over the maintenance department. Mm-hmm. And he was the coolest cigarette-smoking, ex-Muslim turned Christian pastor that I had ever met. And she introduced me to him because she said maybe he can give me a job because huh. he needed somebody in the maintenance department. And um, I met him, and he was definitely game-changing. Because mm. I, first of all, I didn't think that pastors could smoke cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So because he smoked cigarettes was attractive sure. to me, you know what I mean? And I listened to every word he said because he had a background, some like mine, uh-huh. and he put me into action. Huh. That was like the first male positive figure that I actually had. And what it, what action was to him was, okay, you don't want to go to church with, come clean it. <laughs> so he would have me come in on Wednesdays yeah. and clean the church. Now, you know, he got me on at Sugarland Telephone Company and Mason. Sure. So as part of that, you know, you come to the church and you clean it. Huh. And I would come on Wednesdays and I would clean it and I would leave. And, you know, he just used to just pour into me. Hmm. For the first time, he, he made me say that prayer about accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and mm. Savior. Mm-hmm. So you had a religious experience as a result of meeting him? Meeting him was my first real religious experience. Well, you know, well, actually, I said that. Now, my mom drugged me to church. But, but it didn't have the same effect. No, nah, it, nah, it didn't have the same effect. It did, she didn't, nobody said that prayer with me. It was poured enough into me to sit me still long enough to understand what it was about. Looking back from your experience in AA and whatever relationship that you've been able to establish with a higher power as the result of being in AA, would you say meeting him was a God moment or meeting him was something that your higher power directed that you never could have done on your own? Oh, yes, in hindsight. So you were working at the phone company, you were cleaning the church, you had this religious experience. What were the next number of years like? Because this is all happening, I guess, in your early 20s? Yeah, this is about in my early 20s. Okay, so, but you didn't get sober in, in AA until you were 45. So what did the next 20, 25 years look like? 20, 25 years looked like, uh, you know, I, I can play both sides of the fence good because I've been doing that all my life since middle school. So I want to be the church man, the Chickaland Telephone Company man, the gangster, the husband, father. <laughs> <laughs> And the dope fiend under the covers, uh-huh. and alcoholic under the covers. That's a lot to juggle, isn't it? Man, but I was comfortable. I mean, that's all I've been doing. So at the same time, I, I wanted better. So it was a bunch of, if you want to do this, you're going to have to go to rehab. A bunch of incidences sending me to rehab. At different intervals? At different, Oak Sugarland Telephone Company, first rehab. I'm, I'm, I'm following my supervisor. The cigarette smoking Baptist preacher, ex Muslim, <laughs> in the company truck. And uh, he comes across a speed bump and hit the brakes real hard, and I bump into the back of him. 
right in front of the building. He says, man, what were you thinking? He said, you know I'm at the scene for a drug test. He, he knew I was. So I go take the drug test. I come up positive, and I get my first trip uh, to rehab. How old were you when you went there? Oh, man, I might have been 21, 22. So you went to that treatment center as a result of what happened at the phone company? As, as, as a result. And how long were you there? Was that, I think what was treatment, like a month or two there, maybe? I think it was a one-month program, you know, 28 days. Yeah. And then what? I got out of there. I had my uh, wife meet me. Mm-hmm. And when she met me, she met me with uh, a beer. Yeah, I just tell her, come pick me up, I'm done. We thought that was it, it's all gonna be better. So you were married by this time? I was married by this time. When did you get married? Man, I think I got married 23, 22, 23. Yeah, I was married. So did you have any kids by then? No, no, I didn't have any kids by then. Okay. I didn't, but, but I was married. Okay, so you're married. Yeah. So because my, the first girlfriend we didn't get, that I asked to marry, right. we didn't marry. Yeah. She said no. Not soon after that, I met another girl, and we got married. I instantly think that because we do that, that I should get married. So she meets you right after you get out of rehab. Right after I get out of rehab. With a beer. With a beer. And of course, you couldn't turn it down, I guess. I couldn't turn it down. I mean, I told her to bring it. Mm. And she brought it like it was ginger ale. What's interesting about that is that particular treatment center has a very good reputation for the handoff between their program and AA. There are AA meetings that, that take place in that particular treatment center at the time. I, I know it's changed a lot over the years, but um, obviously you had been exposed to AA previously in your life, but now you were being exposed to it as part of the rehabilitative treatment. The treatment part of it. What was there about her giving you the beer and what you knew about AA that clashed? Or did you not even think about it? I didn't even think that that was AA. I was there, but I wasn't there. AA was just an, a name on the top of the paper. Yeah. Rehab was a resort. You know what I mean? It was co-ed. It was buffet. You know, it was just a place I had to be in order to go back to work. Uh -huh. No desire to stop doing what I was doing. So once they signed all the papers for you that you're, you're supposedly clean and sober, you were able to go back to work? Back to work. And how long did that last? It might have lasted about, I probably juggled it about a six months before they popped a random moment. Again, you got positive. Again, I got a positive. Oh, jeez. Yeah, because that was all part of the, once you get it, once you, once you get the ball rolling, you know, it's every six months. Yeah. Was there a three strikes and you're out rule there? Oh, man, I think it was a uh, three strikes and you're out. I get popped with the random. I go to outpatient at rehab, finish that, and get popped with another random, and it's over. So you're out the door? I'm out the door. That all sounds like it happened within about a year? That all happened within, it had to be about a year. Yeah. What did you fail to learn from that? Man, I don't, I don't know how, the consequences. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how the, there's a big disconnect in there somewhere between the consequences, the action and the consequences. We, we take a certain action and don't expect consequences. Yeah. Or if we expect consequences, 
they're nowhere near what actually turns out. <laughs> so you're on the streets after a year with a good, you know, phone company used to be the, the, the jewel of a job, you know. Jewel of a job. Yeah, so you're no longer with the phone company. No longer with the you're phone. You're married. I'm married. So what happens is, I just kind of float around for a little while. Mm -hmm. I got a good friend that was uh, had a job at, uh, at, at as a data entry, so I get into the data entry, mm -hmm. and uh, same thing. Hmm. Drug test? Uh, yeah, drug test. Same thing. It started off as missing in action, mm -hmm. not coming back from lunch, you know that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Because I'm still using, hmm. I'm still drinking. Hmm. I'm, you know, nothing's changed, Howard. You're still running around with the same crowd? I'm still running around with the same crowd, and I'm still running around with the same lower crowd. And you're married still? And I'm married still. How's the marriage going? I mean, it's going bad. <laughs> <laughs> Did your wife want you to stop? She wanted me to stop. So, you know, at this time, I started doing the uh, voluntary rehab to take some of the heat off. You know, I got a taste of the rehab. Now it's time to go to the recovery center. Check myself in. That's when I started getting a little taste of AA. So you started to connect the dots at that particular recovery center? Man, I started meeting people and they started to, to take me places other than AA. Oh, let's go out to eat. Let's go do this. I'm gonna come pick you up, and you know, attempts to take me through the steps. And, yeah, you know what I mean. So, and then that was another comfortable state because that took me back to my middle school transition days. Oh yeah, you know what I mean when we were going across the tracks. So I can operate very comfortably there. Yeah, too. Yeah. While you were there and also participating with these men in the some of the other activities, right. were you still drinking? No. Okay, so you were staying sober? I was staying sober. So how much sobriety did you, did you actually put together during that time? Man, during those times, let's see, no more than a year of honest sobriety. Uh-huh. I would always kind of start taking the pills. Oh, yeah. Doing the marijuana maintenance eventually. You know what I mean? But I never cut out the old friends. You know, because I didn't think that they were the problem. They were actually good. They were just heavy drinkers. So you just had to not do what they do, but still hang out with them. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Do it like them. You know what I mean? That was the whole. So just rehab after rehab after rehab. How many rehabs would you say you, you were in? It was seven. Seven recovery centers? Seven recovery centers. Seven detoxes. This sounds like just a revolving door you're in throughout the years. Throughout the years, revolving. Now, during this time, as you were getting into your 30s and, and let's say you're even your 40s, you had children at that point? I had children at that point. With my first wife, uh, we had two children. You remember the girlfriend in the beginning that got pregnant? Uh -huh. She's now my wife. And she had the child? <laughs> yeah, she had the child. Wow. She just didn't marry me. Did you, were you part of that child's life over the years? No, you know, through those years, actually I wasn't a part of nobody's life but my own. Yeah, I get that. I was there in passing, somewhat financially, 
yeah. what I did, and always in makeup mode yeah. for those three, four, five months, but never enough to where I can feel anything come back from them. Mm. Just wasn't around long enough. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I was either in rehab or on a binge, very absent. So from, like you say, from 25 to 45, if I wasn't in jail, on a bench. So you went back to jail and- Oh yeah, I went back, yeah, because I turned into a thief, and not a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So I I was totally absent, Howard. Yeah. That's sad. So the last time you went to prison, the last time I went to prison, the last time I went to jail, I only went to prison once. Okay, right. So we were in and out of jail, petty cases. And times are changing. If I was doing those things back then, you would have went to prison. Right. But now it's different. Now it's different. Now it's right. different. So, you know, just petty cases. Two, three months here, six months here. The last time I went to jail was probably about two years away from my sobriety. So it's been seven years because I got a little old paraphernalia case. And uh, and that's that was game changing because I was the oldest cat in there. You know what I mean? Yeah, that really drove home the point, didn't it? That drove that that is time, you know, uh, on the top bunk. So it seems like it took what it took: multiple rehab centers, multiple trips to jail, a marriage I would expect was not so great. It ended, yeah. Oh, it ended. Yeah, it ended. So you had two marriages that ended it in divorce. Did, no, I got the one. Well, she got pregnant at first. We married maybe about seven, eight years ago. You're still married to her? I'm still married to her. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. How did she feel about you getting sober? Oh, man. She loves it. Yeah. She always used to say it was something in me that was good. I didn't see it, but it was something that made her hang in now. So she stuck with you for quite a while, huh? She, She stuck with me for, I think it's been like 13 years altogether. Five of which you've been sober. Yeah. So eight years into the marriage, what did the marriage look like before you finally? Before I sobered up, hurtful. Hurtful. Mm. You know, I, just, I couldn't. Uh, I, you know, I'm old enough to know that I'm letting people down. Um, I don't want to feel. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, so I don't want to be around. Mm-hmm because I don't want to look at the hurt faces and the disappointment. Mm-hmm. So uh, absent until I thought I had something to bring or couldn't go anywhere else. Mm. So she was praying and waiting on the day. Her faith was good. Her prayers worked out, didn't they? Yeah, but it took what it took. It took her to give up for me to uh, hit a, a decent enough bottom to drive me in here. So it drove you in five years ago. We talked a little bit earlier at the very beginning about what, what the, this, this period of time has been like for you. If you had to sum up your last five years of Alcoholics Anonymous and sobriety in general with regard to the impact on your life, what would you say about it? Whew, miracle, Howard. Man, I, you know, it's unexplainable. You know, in hindsight, uh, faith, my belief, mm. and when I look back on what drove me here, because mm-hmm. it wasn't a decision that I made. You know, I was un- incapable of making 
any kind of right decisions. And you see that, why that day was my last is a miracle. Because yeah. it was no different from any other miserable day. Every day since then has been uh, great. Man, it's uh, a new life. Uh, totally different from the life that I, uh, that I come from. It's all new. Every step, because I've never been it, I've never lived this life before. Yeah. So every day, every step is, is, is new. So you got rid of all the old gang. AA smothered it. Because I purposely didn't. It's that AA, it being a, a way of life, right. leaves no time for those things, you know, for, for me. The relationships smother for me. They just smothered out. I mean, you know, a phone call on Christmas, Thanksgiving, but every, my life centers around, mostly around this. Yeah, that's so cool, in fact. The way you frame that, saying that AA smothered your old life, that's such a beautiful, you know, I had never thought of it that way, but we talk about changing playgrounds and playmates, but the sustaining of a good AA program will necessarily, like you said, not leave time for the old life. Right. It won't leave very much in common with the old life because here are people who want to get to together and drink and you don't have any desire to do that. Right. They don't want to sit around not drinking themselves. Right. So I, that idea of smothering is actually brilliant. I like that. That's very, very cool. So can you think of some times during the last five years that your sobriety has really been tested in a difficult way? And, and what kind of things did you do to get out of, uh, to stay sober during those times? The first test for me, I think, was around that, over that two-year mark where, you know, you're involved. You know, you, you're going to, uh, you got your home group. You know what I mean? You're, um, you're, doing, you're taking suggestions. Uh-huh. Uh, AA is productive. It's a productive life. Everything's going good, and uh, I get bored. Hmm. In general or with AA? I guess in general, because AA is my in general. Yeah, okay, I get it, yeah. On every platform, uh, I start uh, hearing the same shares, seeing the same people, you know what I mean? And I start thinking, man, it got to be more. Is this the route? Is this what my life has come? You know what I mean? I'm at a... Yeah, after two years, if you feel that way. Wow. And that's two years of being involved. I'm seeing the same people. I'm doing the same thing. I'm hearing the same, same shares. I'm not doing anything but work, AA stuff and work. You know what I mean? So now I'm getting bored. Were you sponsoring anybody? Sponsoring, okay. yes. Mm. Boredom set in. And, uh, hmm. and I start talking about it. Because that's what I learned in here, you know. So let's say maybe about uh -huh. uh, two years. Yeah, when I start talking about it, the old timers start pulling my tail. You in relapse mode and don't even know it. You're doing so goddamn good, you're going to reward yourself with a fucking drink. You got to be all right with being bored. That's what being sober is. You're ordinary. You got to become all right with being ordinary. <laughs> Man. 
But you opened yourself right up to it by being level with people about what was going on. Right, right, right. right. That's such a great testimony to the importance of letting the people know where you're at. You know, because my feeling is in any given AA meeting, you can talk about whatever it is you want for five minutes. You could talk about Dr. Bob or the book or some something you read or something completely unrelated to the way you're actually feeling. Yes. But if you're feeling bored, boredom is one of the biggest enemies of the program is when people start getting bored and think they've heard it all before. Oh, Howard, talk to me, because I didn't know that thing. Yeah, I'll bet. I didn't know that that was an enemy. How long after you started talking about it did you get that kind of feedback? Man, I, uh, immediately. Mm-hmm. It didn't change immediately because, you know, I, I was still showing up, but hearing that was good. Yeah. But it wasn't the suggestion that changed my boredom. You know, I, I sit through the feelings and I, you know, I, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I also heard you need to switch it up a little bit. Mm. Just try different meetings. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, you, you bored because you want to be bored. There's plenty to do. Try different stuff. Go to different meetings. And that started my journey. And as soon as I took the suggestions and started going to other meetings, and not just once or twice, but frequent mm. other meetings. That's kind of when I started seeing, I saw you yeah. Yeah. outside of here. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? That was during that time. I yeah, was, you I know. know what I mean? And I kind of started frequenting it to, I got to meet Gary. Yeah. That goes there, you know, just the same way at other places, you know, and that's when the change. That sounds like a, an incredible realization of how important staying involved in the fellowship is, but also mixing it up. Mixing it up. I go to, literally, I mean, I come to this club a couple times a week, but I go to a men's meeting on Sunday night, a different meeting on Tuesday. And after a while, people say, how do you know all these people? Well, I go to different meetings (laughs) where I get to know everybody. Right. And it's such a gift. It's such a, a beautiful feeling to know that wherever you go, you feel a little bit more comfortable. I mean, I see you sitting in this meeting. You seem like a very laid back, comfortable guy. Well, on purpose. On purpose. You worked at it. Man, I learned that in the room. I didn't know that being cool was on purpose. Yeah, I, I didn't it. know that we had to make a conscious effort to sit like we sitting, and for me not to be all over the place. And that's another gift of sobriety. This opportunity comes from frequent, because I'm sure if I didn't see you over there. Yeah. And you didn't see me here and maybe other places how we frequent. This opportunity is a milestone. I'll stay sober on this particular experience. This will give me some more time. It'll be something that you can add to all the other things you're doing. And you'll never have too many good things going on that will draw you further and further towards the middle of the program. Like a progress report. Like a progress report. Very, very well said. Well, you know, in kind of wrapping things up, what I want to say is that one of the most beautiful things for me about doing this, and you and I sitting here today, is getting to know you at a level that's hard to do in a meeting when you're sharing five minutes at a time. Yes. You know, unless you can sit down with another man and or woman, eyeball to eyeball, knee to knee, and be looking in each other's eyes and talking, man. That is where it's at. So when I talk about doing these podcasts, I'm, I'm talking about not only sharing with people all over the world, but it's such a gift to me to be able to 
get to know you. Yes. And you know, you're a beautiful man. Thank and, you. And I see the program that you're working. You've told me about your background. I see how it all fits. I see how maybe God put you and me together today on this day after yes. the great meeting we were in to share with each other. And uh, my hope is that you would take away from this something that was valuable to you as well. Man, I, to be in this chair across from you, man, I mean, you know, it's priceless. Yeah, for me you too. Know, it's, it, it's, it's only a gift that AA can really give. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. You know, since we're wrapping it up. Yeah. Um, I've been fortunate enough to where, you know, I know you've heard this, but you live two lives. Yeah. You know what I mean? One, that one, which I vaguely remember, which I'm glad, you know what I mean? And this one, which is uh, a miracle. Yeah. Where you can have a past that you barely remember and you can be put in a position of service to where I can be helpful. And it all comes with keep coming back. I will be notified. The steps are already ordered. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't have to add nothing or take nothing away. And man, it just, it simplifies a person that loves to complicate stuff. Yeah, very. Yeah. <laughs> simplifies the complications of just, just living life. So now I know through this today that I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I am too, and I, I want to thank you for doing this today. Uh, I love you. You're a good man. I love you too, Hal. To me, this is just the start yeah. of us being able to see each other and having one more thing in common, man. So, again, many thanks for doing this. Man, no problem, Hal. Anytime, man. Anytime you need me to do something, just ask. Well, my friends, that concludes today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Calvin S., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Consider it the hand of AA members reaching out to other alcoholics across the country and throughout the world. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this podcast series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>